Welcome to the Amplitude Show. I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and joining me today is Kenter Harbour. Kenter is an elite paratire athlete, a mom, a school teacher, and an author, which we'd love to hear more about. Welcome to the show, Kendra, and thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Before we get into the book and training and all of that great paratire athlete stuff, um, perhaps tell our listeners a little bit about your limb loss journey. Yeah, I was actually born with a birth defect, so my right leg I was missing three toes, or sorry, I was born with three toes, and my right foot was crooked. It was about an inch and a half shorter than my sound side, and I was missing my fibula bone. So quite a few things wrong there, and my parents tried to save it for as long as they could, and they tried to explore some other options, but by the age of two, they pretty much knew there was just no saving it. And they went ahead and amputated at that point. And just a few short months after that, I got fitted for my first prosthesis. So do you recall any of that or, or do you ever remember, you know, have, having worn any kind of leg braces or any, uh, any kind of support before you started walking or because I guess two years old, I'm not a dad, so I don't know what kids start walking, but um, I would assume, you know, you would start the crawling and then the walking around. 18 months to two years old. So do you recall, you know, was, were your parents ever thought of, you know, does this kind of work or like sort of what the thought process went into that? Yeah. Um, normally kids start walking right around the age of one and I was really late. Uh, I was more like you said, around 18 months and it was more of a shuffle, <laughs> not really a walk. Um, but I was kind of getting around. Okay. And that's pretty much when they decided like, she's just not going to live a great life this way. And the doctors assured them that if they removed it, it was going to be a better life for me. But actually at the time they said that I was likely to never run. I kind of find that ironic because that's what I do now. But um, I think the decision was just really hard because how can you be a parent and then just decide I'm going to have my daughter's leg amputated. It's just so I don't know, important of a decision and it weighed on them so much. But after the amputation, they realized that they made the right choice right away because I was walking better on my cast than how I could walk before. Like after it was amputated, I could walk better. I don't really remember anything. I just know from pictures and parents would describe like the day that I got it amputated I woke up from the anesthesia and I didn't have a clue what was going on. So I just stood up on my leg and I cried out in pain. It was the worst cry my mom said she'd ever heard a you know, toddler make. And it just always stuck with her. Like she just can't get that out of her mind. Right. And without digging into much into the book, of course, we want people to read. You wrote a book called um, Whole, A Leg Up on Life. So can you tell us? And, and, and again, you know, having read a few pages of the book, you talk about, you know, that inner struggle, I guess, of, to your point earlier about your mom or your parents making that decision, and you talked about, you know, her faith and renewal and her faith and all of that. You know, can you tell us a little bit about how her, her retelling you the story now that you're older and sharing that in the book? Like, what must, what, what was going through your mind or, or, or you know, how, how is that putting thought to paper or listening to that story and onto paper what did that feel like 
Yeah. And it was hard, especially at the beginning of my book to even write that because I didn't have any memory of it. And my mom has since passed away. So I didn't really have anything to go off of. And I kind of had to settle on my dad's recollection of things. And sorry, men, but they're not quite as emotional sometimes. So, uh, you know, just hearing that story of just how hard it was for them to make that decision. And now as a parent myself, I could not imagine doing that to my own children. And like, you know, you always want to do what's best for them. But in the moment, it doesn't seem like that's the best thing. But I'm glad that they had the courage to do the hard thing, knowing that eventually would likely be the right thing. So what inspired the book? Like what, what, what motivated you to write it? Were you seeing any gaps in the, in, you know, in the care that you were receiving? Or are you seeing the gaps in the community? Like what, what motivated that whole process? Yeah, I think it was more of a calling to gain better representation for the disabled community. I grew up not having any books with people on the front cover that looked like me. And I just thought, what a travesty. You know, there's so many people like us doing great things and we should be celebrated too. And people should know our stories because they're worthy of knowing. And I started actually reading Amy Purdy's book and she's a double amputee. And I read the preface and I was like, oh my gosh, she is so moving with her story and she's inspiring and I can do this too. And it was kind of at that moment after having read that book, I decided I was going to tackle it. And how long did it take you to write the book? It only took me about seven months, which wow. all, but it's really easy with a memoir because it's my life. Like it's already been told, you know? So I didn't have to think of like plot and characters or anything like that. I already the story. But the editing process and um, just revising and all of that and getting the front cover done, the whole process took me about two years. Wow. What are some of the inner struggles when you're writing that? Because you're now reliving some of those experiences and then moving forward and, and jumping off from having written all of that. Like, what was that like? And, and capturing that in your storytelling. Was yeah, it hard? Was it? It was kind of therapeutic. I don't know. That sounds weird. Like nothing was really hard to write about, but I actually kind of found my voice in my story. And that was neat to see. It was also neat to reflect on my growth, where I started and where I am now. And then I think maybe I didn't even portray this well in the book, but like the most emotional time that I have now is like fear for the future almost because I don't know how mobile I'll be as I get older and there's just some things going on with my body like I used to be able to weight bear and step down on my stump or residual limb um, but now like on harder surfaces I can't and I'm just thinking oh man what's to come I'm a little nervous about the aging process as an amputee but you know, it was funny in some regards to like reflect back on some past memories that I hadn't thought of in a long time. So that was cool. Right. And then as a, as a mom, you have your experience of being a pregnant 
uh, being pregnant, sorry, being a pregnant, being pregnant and being an amputee or, or somebody who's experienced limb loss. Can you share a little bit about that experience of, you know, what it's like to be a mom, you know, not only carrying this baby, but also now chasing after your child, right? Yeah. As an amputee. Yeah. Um, I think the pregnancy and motherhood is kind of twofold. So I'll start in the pregnancy aspect. Um, being pregnant with a prosthetic leg is kind of challenging in that you, we have to gain weight naturally. And for me, my prosthesis fits differently if I fluctuate five pounds. Like it is so hard to get a good fit. So I gained 30 pounds and I thankfully only gained a lot of that in my stomach, but uh, I held water a lot. And so my stump would swell and then it wouldn't fit into my leg. And I had to like elevate it a lot. And I had to always wear my liner because if I took it off, it just like ballooned up. So there were things that I figured out like how to make it work. Um, but knowing that I wanted another child after that, I actually had them make my next prosthesis able to be a little bit more adaptive. So they put like a flexible inner liner in there. And when I got pregnant the next time, I was able to take that inner out and it gave me more room. So it was kind of genius. My prosthetist thought about it and I was like, yeah, let's do that. And it totally worked. It was the best. But as far as the motherhood aspect goes, um, I write about this in my book too, but my kids, they didn't notice it for the longest time. And then there was like one day where they both is like almost at the same exact age where they were terrified. They were like, oh my gosh, my mom is taking her leg off. Like, is my leg going to come off? Like what, what's happening here? And they were just horrified. They would actually run away from me. And it, it was so sad. I was like, oh my gosh, my own children are afraid of me. And I was talking to my husband, trying to brainstorm how to fix that. And he's like, let's just kind of make a game out of it. And so we like put stickers all over it. We put dolls inside of it. We just made it fun. And you know, within a couple of days, the problem was solved. Right. I think that's important for new moms and maybe moms now who, who have experienced limb loss and who are amputees to know that, you know, that those things kind of do happen. I like that you brought that up and you said you write that about in your book, because I think that would be a great tool to not be afraid of it and that there's, you have shared that experience. And so those are the kind of things to kind of watch out for and how you dealt with it and how you adapted your teaching to them and, and how you, you now have exposed them to this. You know, and it's funny to your point about, oh, they didn't realize it. And it's funny that, you know, one day they kind of clued in going, oh, my mom's different. Yeah. You know, but it's like, but it's like I gave you birth, I gave, I gave birth to you. So you should, you know, and, and, and that's a curiosity of children, right? It's like, no, they, they do accept this, you know, like, because that's what children are. But there's that part mm -hmm. of wonderment as well going, wait, what? Did my mom just really remove her leg? Right? <laughs> so Probably is terrifying for them they just can't understand it all but yeah and now like we celebrate it they call it my special leg and they want me to come into their school and talk to their friends about it and they share even when I'm not there probably way too much about my leg and 
they just think it's the coolest thing. And it's actually made them a lot more accepting of other people. There's a girl in my daughter's class that is hearing impaired and she wears a cochlear and my daughter thinks it's the coolest thing. So again, she probably asked too many questions about it, but she just treats her like she's special. Right. And now you kids are going to grow up with that background and that knowledge, right? And and how people are unique in themselves and that you can play with them. Like I, I always teach about, you know, when I go to schools to talk about my disability and my, my limb loss and my, my being an amputee. And as an athlete, it's like, you can play with kids in wheelchairs. We're not mm-hmm. fragile. You know, um, we actually do a lot of rough sports. And so, and I wanted to, to go into that next with you in that how talking about prosthesis, when did you discover your, before you became a triathlete or has that always been part of your growing up as well? The, the sports. Um, sports have always been a part of my life. I grew up playing t-ball and soccer and things like that. I played basketball in middle school. That was too much running, a lot of sores on my leg. And I gave that up real fast, but then volleyball came into the picture and I did volleyball, tennis, and softball in high school. Um, I always competed against able-bodied people and it wasn't until last year. So I did my first triathlon only 10 months ago. And um, just fell in love with the sport right away. But it wasn't until then that I actually competed against people that were like me with disabilities. Right. So tell us the training process and the journey to get, because you have just made an announcement and, and actually we've linked up on Twitter that way, is you have just been inducted as an elite or I don't know if that's the right term inducted or I guess welcome into the arms of the elite team or... I don't know. Me can maybe correct that term for me, but you are now identified as an elite paratour athlete. Tell us about that journey because I didn't realize that it was only like just 10 months ago that you started that. And and that's quite an achievement in a very short time. So please tell us like how you got started and and what that journey was like. Yeah. um, I, since I wrote my book, I wanted to just start a blog, get more attention to the book kind of thing. So I started asking some uh, para-athletes for interviews and things like that. And I actually reached out to Grace Norman, who is a para-triathlete. I grew up around her and she goes to the same prosthetic office as me. And I was just asking her some questions and stuff. And she's like, have you ever thought about doing triathlon? And I was like, not really. (laughs) And it just kind of like went in one ear and out the other. But then I also talked to Melissa Stockwell, who's another para triathlete. And she pretty much said the same thing after I interviewed her. And I was like, okay, two people are telling me this, like, maybe I should actually give it some thought. And so I signed up for a super sprint triathlon. So it is like hardly any distance at all. I just wanted to start out like at the basic level. And I started training moderately. And I just so happened to post some of my times. I think it was on Twitter, actually. And Melissa saw those. And she was like, wow, you have some talent. I I want you to come to this triathlon camp that I have in Wisconsin. And that just blew my mind. And I was like, yes, I'll be there for sure. So Um, I went to a four-day camp and they taught me everything that I needed to know to do my first actual triathlon. That wasn't even a sprint. 
And at the end of the camp, we did our first triathlon. So that was the first time I'd like ever worn a wetsuit. I had never swum in open water, nothing. <laughs> it was like brand new. And when I crossed the finish line, they told me that I had qualified for the national championship. And I laughed. I was like, wait, what? Like, I didn't even know that was a thing. And then you're telling me that I qualified. So I was like, well, I can't miss that opportunity. So I went and then I got third place. And again, I was like, this is nuts. So I really started training then. I got a coach and that race was in July. So um, after you know, upping my training and everything, um, we did a combine. So they USAT collected data on us and my times were good enough to be invited to the Paralympic Training Center. And I went to a camp there and they told me all sorts of stuff that I was doing wrong, but doing right. And, you know, it was some good, honest feedback. And I really grew through that. And my times kept improving. So my coach thought I was ready to go ahead and uh, try to get on the start list for my first international race. And I made the start list, went to Sarasota, and I got third place there as well, in my first international race. And then my next race after that was part of the USAT development series. And that was in Cocoa Beach and I placed second. And because of that, that is what actually got me the status of the elite paratriathlete. Wow. And this all happened in a span of 10 months. Yeah. What a roller coaster. It really has been. <laughs> and, and a speed roller coaster at that, I think. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, to your, you know, that is to Melissa's point, though, that that is some talent to be coming off the gates with great time. Maybe perhaps explain to folks who may not know about the triathlon uh, segments or events. So what is a sprint one? Because you talked about that, that that was your beginning journey or that's the start yeah. of your journey. So able-bodied people normally can choose between the sprint race or the Olympic distance but really all para athletes do sprint. So that starts with a 750 meter swim. And then it goes into a 12 and a half mile bike. And then it's 5k run. Okay. And what's the timing for that sprint? Like, like how do you, to your point, like, Oh, I got great timing. Yeah. My fastest time, I think it was one hour and 24 minutes. Oh, wow. Or, that is, you're fast and everything. Well, they, they messed up the last time. So I'm not really <laughs> what I got, but it was like 119, 120. I don't, I don't really even know. The plug actually came unplugged as the finish line. So no one knew what we got, <laughs> but yeah, just constantly improving, learning a lot. Um, Today, actually on Facebook, there was a memory that came up of a year ago when I got my first blade. So it hasn't even been that long that I've been on a running blade. So wait a second. So did you do your first sprint triathlon without a blade? No, I had had the blade for, I think, two months when I okay. had- Okay, I'm like, you're crazy if you did a triathlon <laughs> without blades. Because I, I mean, I've done 5Ks without my blades. 
or without blades. Um, and I think I got my blades like six months, seven months after I've been running long distances with my regular prosthesis. And there is no way like I could run this as fast as I could with my, you know, with my regular prosthesis versus oh, my blades. Like you feel it afterwards. Yeah. Your, your whole body hurts. Just the weight of it <laughs> under a regular prosthesis is too much. It's, a, it's for those who, who don't understand, it's night and day when you're wearing blades. And then when you're wearing your regular prosthesis, you know, we pretty much have a stiff ankle when you're running with prosthesis. You have, you know, a secured L or 90 degree angle on your ankle and, and it's not that it doesn't have that much give. Um, and then what about a full length uh, uh, triathlon? What, what are the distances for those? It's actually just double, double everything. It's like 10 K run and yeah, everything is double. Right. Okay. So what does your, what does your training look like on a regular day? Yeah, I train six days a week and I, typically wake up at like five sometimes and train before work for at least an hour and then go to work, do stuff with my kids. Um, right after work, I normally have another hour or so training block and then um, dinner, family time. And sometimes I have strength training for 20, 30 minutes in the evenings after they go to bed. And then do you train the full triathlon on those training days or do you alternate days? Like, so today's a swimming day, tomorrow's a running day, the next day is a cycling day. Yeah, I do two disciplines a day. So today was a bike and swim day. And then tomorrow is run and strength. And we just kind of cycle through that. Normally you don't do three a day. Right. And then, and, and, and in those training days, do you, do you do the whole, like, let's say for five, do you do the 5k or do you like, you know, what, again, I'm, I'm, I'm asking as a runner, cause we do that differently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So normally you like over plan basically. So I run anywhere between maybe five to eight miles for my running days, even though I know I won't run that far in the actual event, but I think you, you need to get your slow twitch muscles and fast twitch muscles going and all sorts of stuff. So yeah, it's normally a little bit longer than that. Same thing with the bike. Like I'm off the bike in 38 minutes during a race, but, or 35, I don't even know, but you know, I rode an hour and something today. I have an hour and a half ride on the weekends normally. Wow. So it's a, it's a grueling training schedule for you. And and as a mom and you talked about work, like I was thinking, where do you squeeze all of this stuff in? You know, it's I, I crazy. <laughs> it's like never a free second, to be honest. I, do you ever find that that, you know, when you're in that focus athlete mode, that the, somehow the world goes away or like, what are your coping mechanisms for a lot of those, you know, rough days or maybe you didn't do so well on a race or I don't know, or you didn't do so well in your workout. Like how do you deal with those on an every, on a daily basis? Yeah. I was just talking about this because I had some really just rough days where I was angry and I'm like, I need to train. Like that is how I channel it. Like this is my therapy. And I do just shift the focus completely. Like you can't think about those outside things when you are that focus on your training regimen and some of it especially like swimming it's so rhythmic that you almost get into this pattern and it's 
it's soothing, but it's also really hard work. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, the same thing with the running, right? Like, I, I don't know if you find that. For me, it's the pace, right? Like, it, it's like it, if something goes in my head, I find my pace starts going lower and lower or slow. I get slower and slower, I should say. And then um, I also find that when my music is not in tune with my pace is that I get slower when I'm running. So I don't know if you find that, you know, for your running or cycling or, or you're swimming. And I don't think you would listen to music when you're swimming, but, you know, do, do you find that that's also somehow affects like your outside environment affects the way you train? Yeah, actually, my coach is a genius because he has come up with this breathing pattern for running. And please share. Yeah. So it's always on the odd increments. So he'll say like, breathe in for three, out for four. And that way you're never stepping down on the same foot each time you're like, you know, it's hard to explain, but like your foot isn't hitting on the right side every single time when you breathe, it switches. And so it evens you out more. And it also helps you keep pace. Like I don't even have to look at my watch anymore. Because I know that if I'm going to try to almost sprint, it's like a two, one, it's into out one. And if I'm going like a warm up, it's in five out four. And how do you do that with your brain? Oh, I just <laughs> literally count the whole time. I can listen to music and stuff too, but I am counting. And that also helps me. But I think some people that would like drive them nuts. But it, I don't know, like if I'm focused on that, then I'm not focused on how tired I am or like how my breathing never gets out of control. That's the thing. Like I can always drop it to a different pattern if I can't keep up with that. And it's fantastic. Like it has completely changed me as a runner. I'm going to have to try that. So tell me this from a unilateral, I think that's called uh, amputee. (laughs) Is your blade longer than your sound leg? It is about, I would say, two inches higher just because of the compression. Yeah. And when I first got it, I was tripping all over the place. Like I would kind of stub my toe and I just was not getting the hang of it. But I finally did. And it feels like it's part of me now. But even still, like I've seen some of the blades that have almost like a split in the middle of the foot. And it really helps them to go on trails or like make turns. Mine doesn't have that. So when I'm going around bends and like cul the sacks and stuff like that, that has still kind of tripping me up a little bit. But for the most part, it's pretty easy now. Yeah. So the different prosthesis that you're wearing, you know, one of the challenges I have as an athlete is, is always getting that perfect fit for a run. Do you have different prosthesis for, like, do you wear one for swimming? And do you, do you have a different one for, for cycling? Obviously, maybe, I don't know. Um, tell us the different sort of prosthesis that you've got. And, and do you have different sockets for all of them? That's a good question. I do not wear any when I'm swimming. And I wear one for cycling, which I just actually got, gosh, maybe four months ago. And it has the clip of the cleat, like right on the bottom of the foot. So I don't even wear a shoe or anything like that. And it clips right in. It's perfect. Um, I just have my blade 
for running. And those are the only ones that I use in a race. But then I have like my everyday walking leg. And then I just got a kind of cosmetic leg where I can wear heels and things like that. Don't all of us have leg collections at some point now? <laughs> it's so weird. Um, so then does the time, going back to the triathlon, does the time, like, does it pause when you're no. switching over? Nope. That's called transition and you don't pause at all. Um, some people have like really mastered that. My times have gotten a lot faster through transition. Um, now that I have the same liner for everything and that has really helped. So I'll just keep the liner on. I have like a suction ring also that keeps me held up high and I keep that on. I just have to roll it on after my swim. That's it. Because you start with a swim, right? Right. Right. And then, then you don't, you don't wear a prosthetic when you're swimming. Yeah. I don't wear a prosthetic when I'm swimming. Someone comes to the water's edge and will actually normally there's two people and they help me get one arm each. And I kind of like hop with their help to a chair. And then I put on my liner and my prosthesis and then I run, <laughs> run to get to the bike. Okay. So yeah. So swim, bike, and then run. Yes. Awesome. Wow. That is, that is, yeah. And, and to be where you are in 10 months, I think that's quite an achievement. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, so yeah, no, that's, that's, that's for France. So there's a race in France that's coming up in June and for USAT, we have to basically like self-nominate to make it on the start list. So I just put my name in today and those international races help you acquire points and those points will help you to get to the Paralympics, which is definitely my goal, <laughs> my end goal. We'll see if I can make it, but for every category, I'm in PTS four, but every category they take two and the person who is number one in our category, she's amazing. She's ranked number one in the world. So she's, you know, a fierce competitor, but hopefully I can rise to the top. There's only one other girl ahead of me right now, actually. So I have a decent shot. No, I think, I mean, I, I, I think so. I mean, you know, again, to achieve what you've achieved in the last 10 months to becoming in third and second now. I think you're, you're, you're way up there. So, you know, good luck to that. And I was actually going to ask you, you know, uh, two things. So let's maybe go back to just the one first is, so there's different, you talked about different categories. So in athletics, we have different categories as well. Is it a standard globally now, like internationally, like the, the, because it's a, it's an Olympic or Paralympic event as well. So there's a standard of, of what the categories are. Yes. Yep. And you have to, so I got, categorized nationally and then because I'm going to start international it's a whole different classification but I'm actually PTS4 in both okay and then how many how many oh okay so you're in both and then how many how many categories are there or how many levels of yes. classifications are there there's PTS 2 3 4 and 5 and then there's also two for visually impaired and then there's two for wheelchair Okay. And then, so in, I'm kind of basing this on athletics. So is each category different abilities, different mobility abilities? So is that the same for, you know, the, the 
the level five, is that like a able bodied? Um, I would say they would still be considered disabled. They were, they're not racing against other able bodied people. Uh, I would say that some of the level fives beat the other like able bodied people. Um, especially I mentioned Grace Norman, she beats all the men. Like, she is unstoppable. Um, in fact, she should actually be a PTS four like me. I'm glad she's not because I would be competing against her. But the only reason that she is PTS five is because she's that good. And normally they're not, they're not supposed to do that. It's really just supposed to be the level of disability, but she is the only one in the world that is racing in PTS five. That is a leg amputee. Everyone else is upper extremity. Right. But that's, um, you know, that's, that's, so you're, you're never ever ranked with her then or a, a, a P5 and a P3 would never be ranked with you. Exactly. Right. They have their own, they have their own, they have their own awarding things and then you have your own awarding things and then she has her own awarding. Things. That's amazing though, to be the only one at that level because she's just that good. That's, that's amazing. And that's really awesome. So you talked about, uh, going to Paris so that I was going to ask you know what's next for you so when is that happening is that something happening in 2022 yeah yep coming up in a month so, wow so oh, you're in rigorous training now oh yeah yeah actually with triathlon um, our season is so long like it's just we don't stop there might be you know a couple months in there where I'm still training six days a week but it's just a little lighter um, just to give my body a little bit of a rest, but really this is year round. I train this way all the time. <laughs> wow. Wow. I, I can't, I can't, no, I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a seasonal athlete. So my sports is summer season. So it just started like literally the season just started the outdoor sports. Right. I, I, I haven't really taken into indoor season, uh, for my sport. So I've always, and again, a lot of field sports don't typically go into to an indoor season track does mm -hmm. um but in in para field there's not a whole lot that happens uh indoor wise <laughs> um you know especially in my sport where there's a lot of throwing you don't have the space um True. yeah <laughs> you know and and you have floor covering not ground that you know can absorb a weight of a shot put. so uh don't want to destroy the floor so no. they won't <laughs> but um but yeah um yeah very seasonal so i didn't i didn't realize that it's a, it's a whole year round yeah so my first race was in the beginning of march this year and then our last race is in october wow okay so yeah so you do get a short break but you probably don't really stop training because you have to be ready for march again so wow okay awesome cool and then so yeah so then after paris Obviously, 2023 happens, and the next Paralympics is 2024? No, yeah. 2023. Oh, 24 20 in Paris. Mm -hmm. 24 in Paris. So do you all participate in a Grand Prix as well, in Athletics Grand Prix, or no? Is, no. It, is, it, a, triathlete, is a triathlete actual mm -hmm. events and then, um, or uh, a discipline on its own, and then you go to the Olympics, the Paralympics? Right. Yep. Awesome. Wow, that's, that's intense. Yeah. Um, and how many competitions do you all regularly do a year? That really varies. Um, for me, I'm trying to be strategic in the races that I go to because it's just so expensive. Triathlon, 
I mean, we just have so much equipment for three different sports and then the international travel that has been really hard. I'm trying to get sponsors right now. I have enough sponsors to cover my national races, but not international. So that's just the burden in itself, but I will likely do probably six or seven this year. Wow. And how many have you done? I'm like, just like everybody, if you could see my face, I'm like in a wow mode. It's May and you want to do seven a year. So what, one a month in the next couple of months? Roughly. Yep. And I have like scheduled in June and yeah, it's crazy. Wow. That is, that is amazing and mind blowing at at the same time. And I just, I can't even fathom, you know, doing a triathlon every month. That is, that is wild. Um, so any tips then for potential triathletes, paratriathletes who wants to pursue this and gets inspired by your story and say, you know what, I want to do this. What's your yeah. tip? I have a lot of tips. <laughs> Go so for it. The first one is to reach out to organizations like Dare to Try, which is who I'm now on their team, but that's the camp that I went to. Um, but there's all sorts of other ones. Team Catapult has one like CAF, um, Challenged Athletes Foundation. All of these foundations will not only help teach you the sport, but they will also a lot of times fund things. They will give you grants. They will help you to travel and pay expenses in some you know, instances. So I would say that for sure. Um, just kind of leaning on people who have already done it. So asking other people and having mentors that has really helped me. And then for triathlon, especially, I would say equipment. (laughs) Equipment has helped shave minutes off my time. I got a new bike. That was a huge difference. Then I got racing wheels, another really big difference. So I think it's just like asking for help, getting the grants because of how expensive it is. And then just trying it. Like if you're devoted and if you are passionate about it, you know, that's all it takes. You need to be committed, but you don't even have to do it at the top level. Like you can race. I did my hometown race and it was like an able-bodied race and I still did it. And I I actually finished pretty well, but like, there'll be people there to help you. All you have to do is talk to the race director and tell them that you're a para-athlete. Here's what I need. Like I need a chair during transition. I need help getting out of the water. And as long as you advocate for yourself, I've never had anyone tell me no, like they will do anything to help you and it can be done. Yeah, and I think anything in the uh, in triathlete world anyway, there's a lot of y'all that are really like in the, at the front of the sport, right? There's Melissa, there's you, there's... Well, Jamie Brown's one of Chris Hammer. I mean, yeah, there's... There's tons of you, all the CAF athletes who, you know, really advocating for this. So it's great to hear that, that you know, that the, the triathlete world is actually very much inclusive and and accommodating to include the pair athletes in the sport. Oh yeah. We want people to join. We want people to have their lives changed like mine has. 
Yeah. No, it's great. Is there an Iron Man wish for you? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I am not a long distance person. After that triathlon is finished, I'm like, yep, I'm done. Just have no desire. Right? Definitely. There's got to be a stopping point. <laughs> In any event. Um, so where can people learn more about you and find out about uh, your book and, and, and all, and all that? Yeah, if you just head to my website, actually, tenderherber.com, um, everything is there. You'll find out about modeling for me. You'll find out about, you know, my my bio, more about me, my book, more about triathlon, all sorts of stuff. Awesome. And can, they, can people find you on social? Yeah, they can. Um, they can go to, it's um, leg up on life for Twitter and Kendra.herber at uh, Instagram. Graham, and that's pretty much it. Awesome. Thank you so much for spending the time with me today. Look for Kendra Herber's book, Whole, A Leg Up on Life, and keep an eye out for her in the next Prior Triathletes events. I want to thank Kendra Herber for joining me today. I'll share the link on my website at www.airsofdina.com. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any comments, questions, or show ideas, please connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at The MTH Show. Until next time, I'm your host, Air Salt and this has been The MTH Show Podcast.